0: at our own risk <laughs> ready ready for the dark
1: tales when we dare not close our eyes
2: brace yourself for the no sleep podcast
0: ship is beautiful. Is it hand-painted?
3: Olivia does it, somehow. She chooses and changes the colors from time to time, depending on her mood. They're always so vivid and... emotional, in a way.
0: She has excellent taste. Hey, you know we're gonna bring her back, right?
3: Yeah, it's just... I've become a little wary of optimism.
0: I understand. Still, if it were my existence on the line, and I knew that you and Nicole and Erica were on the case, I think I'd sleep pretty easy. We'll get her back.
3: Well, now you almost have me believing it. Approaching your abortion. Let's get to the bridge. Hello, you two. How's the arm, Graham?
1: Getting better, thank you.
3: So, we're almost there? We are. Is it ahead? It's foggy. I was hoping to catch a glimpse before we landed so I wouldn't have to ask. This place, is it like a secret base or something? It's a little more complicated than that, but yes, a base of sorts.
1: Increasingly less secret. Initiating manual docking procedure in transit. I suggest you all find a seat with something sturdy to hold.
0: Uh, I I can't really get my harness on this side. Could someone...
4: Oh, thank you. I owe you some milkweed.
1: All right, we're locked in. Bullseye, excellent pilotage. Connecting Olivia to electrical railway grid. It may take some time for all systems to fully recharge. We should secure the train. I agree. With
5: everything that's been happening, my trust in even our mightiest fortresses waning. Let's ensure we're on home territory.
1: This is an impressive machine. What is it used for? The storage and transport of objectionable entities.
6: Like what? Oh, you know, any beastie boss man is offloaded from headquarters. A werewolf here, a centaur there, ghost dashins.
3: Alexis! It's so good to see you. Hey, Peacock.
6: Good to see you, too. Good to see you all.
7: Welcome to the nowhere-specific standard railroad, Sky Travelers. And you gave us quite a scare dive bombing in out of the fog like that. Hell of a landing, though.
1: Oh, stop.
7: Come on in off this blustery flight deck, huh? You're just in time for dinner. I made mock turtle soup.
5: Mock turtle? With calf's head and...
7: organ meats? Well, they're mock organ meats. Which are made of... You know, it's a... it's a nesting doll situation. You know, various meats revealed to be various other meats. It's all very ethical, very cruelty-free, but... We could be stuck down that road for a while, so it's really better if you just stop asking questions and eat the soup, okay?
6: Sorry, he's just really proud of how much it tastes like turtle. Would you mind humoring him?
7: Sure, fair enough. Um, uh, wow, uh, really, um, uh, really, really turtly.
3: Yeah, super turtly. I'd have, I'd never known there were this
1: has. Pierced to the heart of me. The richness of the broth, it satisfies. The meats, the mystery surrounding them, all enthralling. My palate dances. Another
7: bowl, I beg you. See? what I tell you? <laughs> it's good, right? So, anyway... Thank you both for the warm welcome.
6: Indeed. I think we're all glad to see the fortress is in good hands. It's our pleasure. Been a quiet gig these last few weeks, just holding down the fort. Train practically runs itself, monsters are all locked up tight. So we've just been taking the same two days' worth of scenery and pulling off culinary master strokes. apparently. Have you been
3: firing beacons from here, too?
7: Nah, this region was already covered. David just had a feeling someone might try to interfere while he was busy with the tour, so he asked us to camp out here.
6: A few extra pairs of eyes on the big bads, you know? So what brings you guys screaming down from above?
5: We're recharging Olivia. Something happened after we transferred broadcast control
1: from the chartreuse. She went offline. Nearly flapped a lot of our jacks in the process. Not sure if it was a power surge or what exactly. I've scheduled her to reboot when she's fully rested.
7: And the submarine?
6: Lost to the depths, I'm sad to say. Geez, I'm glad you all made it.
7: Uh, Let's see, it looks like Olivia's at about 35%. Shouldn't be long. There is a ludicrous amount of power running underneath this thing.
6: You said she went down after you transferred broadcast control to the bridge? Seemed to, yes. So, who's controlling the broadcast now?
5: I sent the host credentials to the OWL. But we lost communications and we haven't been able to verify if anyone received the message.
7: I'm increasing the speed to headquarters. We're scheduled to arrive tomorrow, but we can make it tonight. We should all be together to handle whatever this is. All right, now, about that moon message. Ouroboros calling Lunar Station. Please respond. Come in, Owl Station. Please respond.
3: Um, guys? The moon is rising now, starting to cut through the fog. I think you should come to the window. I'm not seeing things, am I?
1: Uh, no. I'm seeing it too.
3: Is the moon... bleeding? It would appear so.
1: Surprising amount. Whoa, another pocket just exploded over there. See it?
7: Jeez, that whole side is covered. It's starting to reflect back red
3: light. It's starting to look like a crackle finish. What, is it, like, evaporating?
6: I have no idea. I don't think I've ever actually seen something that terrifying before. Wow. It just hits you right in the guts, doesn't it?
3: Yeah. End-of-the-world
6: vibes.
7: Oh, we'll be at HQ soon. You better tune into the feed, see if there's some kind of explanation for this.
5: What explanation could there possibly be for this?
0: Uh, welcome back to... Yikes. Uh, Welcome back to what I fear may be our last live lunar broadcast, dear listeners. I'd like to apologize about the uh, technical difficulties with our ambient mood lighting. It was not my intention to kick off an early blood moon. (coughs) Uh, Oh, some of it got in my mouth. (coughs) But enough about the changes in the sky above you. Tell me, have you felt a change in yourself? It is my hope that you may already be feeling a slight lift to your spirits. A loosening of strings around your mind, a break in the storm clouds, allowing a calm and clarity you'd nearly forgotten you were capable of. But this is only a hope, and according to our valiant surgeon, significant corruption remains. So, I must ask you, to once more find that place within yourself, that specific frequency of your creative mind, lock onto it, dig generously into the vault of your imagination and follow me into our first tale. Ah, hang on, what's that flashing light? Oh, I see. It appears we are drawing ever closer to Halloween night. Oh ho ho, and I hope you're as excited for the thinning of the veil as I. It is my sworn and solemn duty at this time to inform you of our annual Halloween Season Pass and Bundle Sale. From midnight to midnight Eastern Standard Time, all Halloween day long, on October 31st. Swing by our social spots at No Sleep Podcast or our website, thenosleeppodcast.com, for more detailed minutiae on the particular specifics. In brief, this Halloween, the deals are to die for. Now, as I was saying, <clears throat> in our first tale, a bond is formed over a shared experience at the hands of a lake-based cult that targets and kidnaps women wearing green clothing and only when it rains. Written by Jasmine Forrestall and performed by Mary Murphy, Erin Lillis, Addison Peacock, Mike DelGaudio, and Nicole Doolan, share with us the peculiar experience of green rain.
8: Excuse me. Miss, can I have a word? Please, wait.
9: Haven't I suffered enough? Please. Haven't you vultures taken enough?
8: I'm not a journalist, and I won't ask about your husband.
9: Well, who the hell are you then?
8: I... I need help. You... You may know what's going on. I'm
9: sorry. I can't help anyone anymore.
8: Please. Please. My... my little sister. They... they took her.
9: Come with me. Do you take milk and sugar? Yes, please. When did they get her? Today. Good. There's still a chance.
8: She was taken from her room. There was an inch of water on the floor and... and the window was broken. There there was a scrap of green silk caught on the broken glass. The cops say she was kidnapped. I know better, though. They took her. She took her.
9: I... Oh, this rain isn't stopping any time soon.
8: Does that mean we can save her?
9: Do you know how I was taken? How I escaped? No. I was sixteen. I was in love with this guy. His name was Lewis, and he was a poet. Played the saxophone and drove a beat-up convertible he'd fixed all by himself. There I was, shy and short and ginger. I only had one dress that made me feel sexy. It was long and green and beautiful. When he asked me out that rainy Saturday, how could I resist? Yes, I knew the fucking superstition. But what could I do? The love of my life asked me out and I only had one nice dress. So I thought legends be damned and wore the green dress in the rain.
8: My sister wore her green jumper to school. We didn't even know it was going to rain.
9: i will do it. You know, I think I'll need something stronger than tea. Scotch?
8: No, thank you.
9: Suit yourself. Anyway, I wore the green dress despite the warnings. I snuck out at ten because in those days a girl couldn't just go out on dates. My parents would have whipped me just for asking. Louis thought I was bold. Our date went well. He said goodnight and I went home. I snuck back in through my window. I was so giddy that I couldn't sleep. When I heard the knock at the window, I thought it was just the rain. Until it happened again, until I looked up. I saw her there, all shrouded in green. My God, I was terrified, but I I was also in awe. My God, she was beautiful, there in green. In my window. I I couldn't help it. I stood up, walking to the window. There was a flash of lightning, and I saw them the sisters. There were so many, all in green, all behind her on my lawn. My bones hurt when it rains, a deep ache green and sickening. Have you ever attributed a color to pain? Like how a pinprick feels red? Or nausea, sickly yellow? Well, the pain in my bones is green. Fitness that may be. The scars of all those branches slicing into me still hurt too. It's all green. All the pain. Shouldn't we go
8: to save her now?
9: Not yet. They'll be strongest now at the beginning of the storm. I only escaped because the rain had almost passed. For now, I'll tell you everything I know. I know... Yes, yes, yes. You know that damn legend. Everyone knows it. Girl, have you ever considered that the legend isn't the full story? It isn't even fucking close to the full story. We all know about the green matriarch and her daughters. That's not what I'm going to tell you. Sorry. Don't apologize, kid. You're under a lot of stress right now. So, what happened after you saw them? Oh, yeah. Sorry for my ramblings. No problem. I was transfixed. It was almost like a dream. I... I felt this urge. I had to put on the green dress. It would be improper to wear anything else. I got changed right there. Modesty wasn't important. All that mattered was the dress. It felt like I was more naked in my pajamas than while I was changing into the dress, if that makes sense. What happened next? Shh. Do you hear them?
8: Yeah. How did I not notice it before?
9: It's always been there. Once you've heard it, you can't unhear it. They were silent when they came for me. They're always silent when they take people. That's why the townsfolk report a deep unease before someone vanishes. Because we've never heard the rain without the singing. In hindsight, I know that I felt that something was off before they came. I was just too overwhelmingly happy to know what it was. I should have known. It's not your fault. You didn't know. I didn't know either. It sounds like your sister was stronger than me, though. Unlike me, she resisted the urge to open the window. If I escaped, she almost certainly will. What happened when you opened the window? She took my hand led me down an invisible flight of stairs to the yard and they lifted me onto their shoulders. All of their hands were gnarled and long fingered with too many joints and long stringy growths from each of their fingers. I only later realized that they were roots, long slimy roots from some sort of lake weed all covered in dirt and algae. They began to sing as they carried me into the forest. It was mesmerizing. All I could think of was that the legend made my fate sound much worse. They took me to the lake and shrouded me in green silks. I didn't properly realize that it wasn't a dream until I felt the cold water touch my left foot. Is that why? Yes, that's why I have a limp. Does it hurt? Only when it rains. Their feet are worse. At least my hands didn't touch it. My theory is that the longer they spend in that water, the less human they become. Do they... Become the lakeweed? Yes. That part of the legend is true. We need to go then. We'll need these. Disguises? They won't let us near the lake if we aren't wearing green. Here are my keys. I've had a few.
8: Don't worry. I can drive a standard.
9: How did you get away? When my foot touched the water, I lashed out. I broke several of their fingers. I took off running, not looking back to see if I was being pursued. The rain had slowed down, but the ground was slick with mud. Wet branches tore at my dress and my skin. I ran and ran until I made it to a cornfield. My feet were almost unrecognizable at the end of it. Did they chase you? Only three did. When it stopped raining, they turned back into piles of lakeweed. I limped halfway home and collapsed. I woke up in the hospital with my parents sitting at my bedside. They were concerned, yet angry at me. No matter what I said, they were firm in their beliefs. They saw Lewis's car, and they thought that I had gone out with him and things had gone badly. They said that I was just protecting him. Town's folk drove him out. I never saw him again. I ended up marrying Ned Miller, the baker's son. I think they knew he was innocent. That town just hated intellectuals. Ah, I... Oh, turn here. Sorry about that. Okay, now there. This road gets narrow, so we might need to get out and walk at some point. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry about my car, dear. I won't be needing it for long. Do you have any weapons? I have a crowbar and a tire iron. Whoa, stop here. It's the only point where you can turn your car around for the rest of the road. Should I turn it around? Yes, The faster you can get out in a pinch, the better. It's this way.
8: You've been back here, haven't you?
9: Do I need to answer that? How many times? I lost count a long time ago. I hope she's still alive. Trust me, they like to end the ritual right when the storm ends. If they weren't so damn slow, I wouldn't be here. How can you be sure? Shh, we're almost there. Ah! Liliana! Oh, you've done it now. What's that? They're coming. You need to hide. But. Now! I'll deal with them. When your sister comes, take her to the car. But. What about. You have your instructions. Did you bastards miss me?
5: Who are you? Your sister will save you. Run!
8: Liliana! We need to go.
9: You'll never get me. Or anyone else.
8: We need to keep going. Your arm! We'll deal with that later. We need to go.
7: The doctor said you are very lucky. If that shrapnel had hit you an inch to the left, it would have hit your brachial artery.
1: What were you thinking going off into the woods with that Agnes Phillips? You know she killed her husband. No, she didn't.
7: I bet she kidnapped your sister too. I mean, did you actually see these so-called monsters?
1: I heard them. She probably put speakers in the woods. The woman was crazy. She had a grenade, for heaven's sake. She could have killed both of you. But she didn't. She
8: killed them. The sisters. The matriarch. Ask
1: Liliana. She was there. She saw them all. Well, fine. Your sister should be awake now. She's in the next room. Let's put an end to this.
8: Oh, no. Oh, no. No! Liliana, no! no!
0: In our second tale, a young woman returns to a theater she used to manage in order to relive happy memories made with her father, who recently passed on. However, she soon becomes unnerved by a stranger who seems to be following her to all of the same movies. Written by Joe Sullivan and performed by Addison Peacock, Jeff Clement, Nicole Doolin, and Dan Zapula, witness the results of A death
10: in the family.
3: I was studying at the local junior college when my dad had his stroke. My mother paged me on my beeper, but it was too late. I'm still not sure why she took so long to let me know that dad had been admitted. But by the time I got to the hospital, he was gone. I can't say that my mother and I had any kind of real relationship after I had moved out, but my dad and I sure did. He had managed the movie theater right across from my college, the Cameo Multiplex. I stopped by to see him almost every day, and at least twice a week we'd see a movie together. Every little girl absolutely adores her daddy. Then puberty hits and relationships change. But for me, it was different. There had been no depreciation in that perfect childhood love I'd always had for him. He was a frequent presence in my dreams in the weeks following his death. Never nightmares, just bittersweet imaginings that led to tears when I awoke and was forced to accept reality. After weeks of mourning my father... I attempted to move on with my life. I shared an apartment with another girl who went to my school, and we partied harder than I'd like to admit. I went out on dates, did my coursework, and was sending applications to far-flung universities. There was no reason for me to hang around Binghamton anymore. My mother wasn't a part of my life at all. Daddy and I had tried to get her to go to rehab for years, but she was stubborn and completely addicted. I barely said two words to her during the funeral. Our relationship was so far gone that we no longer even bothered to argue. Luckily, my Aunt Kathy handled all the details for the service and burial with some minor input from me. My mom had been hungover at my father's viewing and reeked of alcohol during the burial. We could all smell her. Most everyone had given up on her after years of trying to help. She rarely left the house, as her license had been suspended for over a decade. I felt like she had betrayed my dad by not getting help. He had taken care of her while working long hours and raising me. He never made excuses for her, never aided her addiction in any way beyond loving her for who she once was. He had never ceased hoping and praying that she would work towards sobriety of her own accord. Now he was dead and I was moving on. I found myself returning to the cameo week after week, right on schedule for new releases. I liked to visit with the people who had worked for my dad, to hear them talk about him, always with fondness. I had one early class, and the rest of my college schedule took up my afternoons, so I could usually make the first showing for the day. It was a treat having the theater to myself for the smarter movies the limited run dramas and indie films that never ran for more than a couple weeks. I was a bit of a movie snob, but found myself watching the big blockbusters that my dad would have enjoyed. He liked the indie films too, but there was nothing he loved more than big explosions, especially within the context of a heroic war drama. It was during a showing of a new military picture that I first felt the chill of being watched. It was a guy I had seen in passing the week before. I remembered him because he wore an old green parka with the hood up and a knit hat underneath, even though it was warm inside the theater. The first time I saw him, he had sat in the back, but now he was only a few rows behind me. I knew he was watching me because he was wearing sunglasses and we were the only two people in the theater. For the remainder of the picture, I remained vigilant and didn't get to enjoy the film. I was worried that he might approach me. I was relieved when he left just before the end of the movie. When it was over, I went out to the lobby and asked around to see if anyone had seen the man before. Rodney, my dad's former assistant manager, recognized his description.
11: Yeah, I see him in the theater just about every day now. I think he gets his tickets from the kiosk He usually doesn't talk to anyone Just some loner, I guess
3: Is he always bundled up like that? Sunglasses and everything?
11: Yep No idea what his issue is
3: Before we could talk further Rodney became distracted by a ticket taker Waving him over
11: Well, it's always nice seeing you, Julia I've got to deal with this
3: I said goodbye to Rodney and eventually forgot about Parka Guy, figuring he was merely some eccentric with time to kill. I didn't go back to the theater for a week because I had finals to study for. But after I took the last test for my morning class, I went and saw the new John Cusack drama. Halfway into the movie, I noticed someone coming down the aisle. I usually sat in the center of a row... That way, no one would have to cross in front of me. I had only seen two couples in the theater for that showing, so I was shocked when parka guy sat in the row behind me. There was no entrance behind me, so I didn't know how this guy could have come in without me knowing. I sunk as far down into my seat as I could, while this Unabomber look-alike stared at the back of my head through his dark glasses. It became too distracting and moderately unnerving, knowing he was right behind me. Though I was enjoying the film, I got up and left at the halfway point. I hung around the lobby to see if Rodney was around, because I wanted to chat with him about parka guy creeping up on me. But the concessions manager, Amanda, said he was busy doing payroll and wouldn't come out of his office for a couple more hours. I eventually returned to the theater to finish the film I had walked out on. I was relieved when Parker guy made no appearance. However, Rodney stopped me in the lobby on my way out with this odd look on his face, like he was conflicted about what he was about to tell me.
11: Julia, um, I'm not sure if you dropped this the other day or if it was left for you.
3: Rodney handed me a folded piece of paper, which had Julia neatly written across it. It was sealed with a pink heart sticker. I anxiously took the letter. I didn't drop it. You don't know who left this for me?
11: The cleaning crew found it in Theater Six the other day. Amanda said you left a movie early that morning, so I assumed it was for you.
3: My chest tightened as I peeled off the sticker and opened the trifold paper. I knew exactly who had left it behind. I scanned the brief note and then read it to Rodney. Stay safe. He's always watching.
11: So you didn't bring this in with you?
3: He had a grave look to him then, and I noticed he was sweating through his shirt. No, I'm assuming it's from Parka Guy. Oh, Christ.
11: That's what I was worried about. We can't go six months without having some type of stalker or flasher coming through here.
3: You think Parker guy is stalking me? My first thought had been that he was just some regular creep. But now I began to consider whether he would be watching me outside of the confines of the theater. Rodney was really bristling now.
11: Julia, I promise you I'll confront him the next time I see him. I'll make him take off his hood and put the sunglasses away, and I'll tell him to leave you alone or don't come back."
3: I stayed away from the theater for some time. Only when the school semester was over did I go back. I had time to kill, and the feeling of nostalgia I got whenever I visited the cameo was too powerful to ignore. I was supposed to attend a Christmas party at my Aunt Kathy's that evening, and was already dressed for the occasion as I was planning on traveling to her house after the movie got out. I was wearing a cute red and green striped dress, and I felt a little out of place as I walked through the theater lobby to purchase my ticket.
11: Uh, You look great,
3: Julia. Rodney swam through a crowd of moviegoers to hug me. He asked me how my final tests had shaken out, and if I was meeting up for a date because of how pretty I was dressed. Nope. Just a party tonight at my aunt's. Rodney saw that I was looking around nervously, so he leaned in to whisper.
11: Julia, I haven't seen you-know-who around since we discovered the letter.
3: Oh, that's good. I wished Rodney a Merry Christmas and soon found myself sitting in my usual row in Theater Six, ready to digest the latest holiday-themed romantic comedy. The movie was what I expected passably entertaining schmaltz. I had to use the restroom during the movie, something I always loathed doing. After I had relieved myself and returned to my seat in the packed theater, I was shocked to find a letter with my name on it in the cup holder. I snatched up the paper, swallowing a lump that had formed in my throat when I realized that it was sealed with a pink heart. I shoved the note into my jacket pocket and crouched down in my seat, I slowly looked around, trying not to draw attention to my search. I began shaking when I spotted that all-too-familiar green parka and those big black sunglasses in the section to my left. Parka guy was undoubtedly looking in my direction as he was sitting parallel to me. My palms were sweaty as I grasped the armrests on my seat. It was disgusting. The sticky mix of sweat and popcorn grease. I wanted to get up and run, but I knew the best course of action would be to leave the theater as quietly as I had done when I went to the bathroom. I worried that any sudden movement on my part might cause my stalker to panic and possibly attack me. My nerves fastened me to that chair for another couple of minutes. My brain was screaming at my legs, trying to get them to function. I recalled how my psychology professor once said that most people believe they will run or fight when confronted with a dire situation, when in truth, many will freeze and not act in their own defense. However, I wasn't one of those people. I stood, slowly, then hustled down the aisle, heading for the exit. Out of the corner of my eye, I thought I detected someone else standing as I fled. The hallway outside of the screening rooms was long. I kept looking back and saw him as he exited the theater. Parker Guy was following me. I ran the remainder of the hallway and burst out into the busy lobby. I spied Rodney behind the ticket counter and ran right over to him, feeling safe that there were dozens of people nearby, including a man whom I knew personally. Rodney, he's following me. I'm sure I looked and sounded like a lunatic to the dozen or so people that were waiting patiently to get their tickets. But Rodney understood immediately.
11: Which theater?
3: He's in the hallway. I pointed behind me. Rodney rushed through groups of people who were milling about, waiting for theaters to empty. He returned minutes later, out of breath.
11: He must have gone back in the theater, Julia. You better get going. I promise that he won't get past me.
3: Thanks, Rodney. I turned out into the parking lot and got into my car. When I turned my beeper back on, I saw that I had gotten a call from Aunt Kathy. I was headed to her house anyway, so I just got on the road and started driving. I figured if she needed me to pick something up, I could just head back out. I was in no mood to hang around and use the payphone at the theater. Twenty minutes later, I pulled into my aunt and uncle's driveway. There were already a few cars in the street, even though the party wasn't supposed to begin for another hour. I was about to get out of my car when I heard the paper crumple in my jacket pocket. I pulled it out, then flicked away the small heart seal. This note was as brief and cryptic as the last one. I wish we could talk. I have so much to say to you. I couldn't help but wonder what this man might want from me. Did he really think that I'd go out and have coffee with him? That we'd have such a great chat, we'd start dating and I'd fall for him? While I was getting myself all riled up, I didn't notice that my uncle had come up to the car window. I practically jumped out of my skin when he knocked on the glass. Uncle Will seemed upset. I rolled down the window and he fumbled and barely spit out the news. My Aunt Kathy had found my mom dead in her house when she went to pick her up for the Christmas party. Kathy had been trying to get a hold of me. I didn't let Uncle Will finish. I raced across town to my mom's house. When I arrived, a few police cars and an ambulance were parked out front. I barely got my car into park before I rushed inside. The nearest cop attempted to shield me from the scene, but I tore my arm away and went into the living room, where my aunt and some medical folks were huddled around, talking. On a stretcher on the floor, her face covered with a white sheet, lay my mother. My God, Julia! (laughs) She killed herself! Aunt Kathy's eyes were red from crying, I surprised myself that I remained unemotional as I wanted to know all the facts before I let myself feel anything. The medics picked up the stretcher with my mom and I stopped them so I could look under the sheet. Don't, Julia! It was too late. I saw her withered, pale expression. It was horrific. Eyes open, mouth agape. She was a husk of a person, a shade of the woman who had at one time loved me, cared for me, before she had abandoned her duty for the bottle. I turned to the man with the medical examiner's badge who was standing beside my aunt. How long has she been dead?
4: Weeks, maybe longer. We'll do an autopsy.
3: I collapsed on the sofa and began weeping at the thought of my poor mom's body rotting away in the living room for who knows how long. My aunt consoled me, held me as I cried. When everyone had gone, Aunt Kathy showed me my mother's suicide note. It read, Julia, I wish we could talk. I have so much to say to you. But your father probably said it all better than I could ever hope to. Stay safe. He's always watching. It was only then that I noticed the heavy green parka draped across the far end of the sofa.
0: In our third tale, a young girl and her family move to a new town and a new church where her pastor father is newly employed. She begrudgingly accepts this move, but is soon confronted by whispers and other strange occurrences during the night. Written by Alyssa N. Vaughn and performed by Addison Peacock, Aaron Lillis, Mike DelGaudio, Ellie Hirschman, Erica Sanderson, Mary Murphy, and Sarah Ruth Thomas find out what truly resides within the parsonage.
3: This is everything I remember about Texas. We're in the car. Driving along a stretch of highway that is bordered by skinny, scraggly pine trees growing so close together it looks as though their branches are interwoven. An army of spindly, scratchy, red-bark bodies standing sentinel along the road, with barely a whisper of bare grass between the asphalt and the shade of their tangling, strangling arms. Even if I could get out, there's nowhere to run. The pines will not let me pass. My mother hums along with the radio in the front seat, her fingers intertwined with those of my father. It's an old hymn, sung in wavery harmony by a quartet whose drawling accents seem designed to come through each drawn-out vowel and percussive consonant. My stomach hurts. It always does when we're in the car this long. My mother beams breathlessly at me.
9: Aren't you excited to see your new house, Patience?
3: it's the parsonage mama it belongs to the church the details do not dampen her spirits you'll have your very own room she turns in her seat to bestow the full force of her smiles on me daddy's hand is almost twisted backwards she forgot to let him loose mama be careful her round belly knocks into daddy's paper cup of coffee from the gas station and he quickly shakes himself free to write it before it spills into his lap.
7: Goodness, Martha, can't you sit still? The girls better behave than you are.
3: Mama returns this with a snipe of her own, and they bicker a ways down the road until their fighting dissolves into laughter (laughs) and a kiss and Daddy's hand on the swell of Mama's belly. They haven't asked me if I'm excited about the baby. We used to live near the church daddy pastored in Corpus Christi, but we had to leave. We have been driving for two whole days, and we are still in Texas. We are not leaving Texas at all, but we are still not to the new church. Texas just goes on and on forever. I stare at the pine trees and try not to throw up. The town is not much more than half a mile of buildings facing each other on either side of the highway, crowding themselves against the trees. Most of the windows are dark or boarded up, and the only place where I can see any other cars parked is the gas station. It doesn't look any different from any other town we've passed through in the last two days. We don't stop in town, but just a bit further down the road we pull into the gravel lot in front of a white clapboard building. Sporting a rotting, whitewashed wooden steeple. We go inside the church first, because that's where the church board is waiting for Daddy. There's a fellowship hall that doubles as the children's Sunday school classroom, and all the wives are in there, laying out casserole dishes and brightly colored bowls of fluff that are mostly jello, Cool Whip, and pecans. They fuss over Mama right away, like little girls who've had a kitten dropped in their midst. I wander back into the hallway and roam the rest of the building the carpet is a bright red and black speckled berber it is almost worn bare but somehow its color hasn't faded the walls are cheap wood paneling even in the bathroom it makes every room seem small and suffocating tucked away in a lonely corner i find a storage closet that doubles as a vestry Piles of hymnals are stacked next to racks of choir robes and old Christmas pageant costumes. Boxes of vacation Bible school materials are piled on church records that go back to when the town was something more than a stubborn wart clinging to the highway. On the far side, a short flight of stairs leads up to another door. I climb it, and each step creaks quietly, protesting my passage. The door does, too, as I slowly pull it open peering in to make sure I won't be surprised by an unfamiliar adult. It leads into the sanctuary, right onto the stage. The room is blessedly empty. I stand behind the pulpit, pulling myself up to peer over and out into the dimness. The windows are not stained glass, but have some kind of colorful plastic pasted onto them, warping the weak sunlight as it filters through. Dust clouds swirl in the sunbeams like a sparkling fog falling onto the rows of pews whose cushions are a matching red to the carpet. I whirl to find an ancient upright piano wedged into the corner. There's a boy, my age, sitting on the bench. Oh! I try to keep my voice soft. There's something about an empty sanctuary that makes you feel like whispering. I didn't realize anyone else was in here. The boy looks up. He is only mildly interested in me. I'm used to this behavior from boys. They withhold any enthusiasm until they can be sure I'm worth the energy. I'm not, usually. It might be that his mother sent him to look for me. I'm Patience. I'm Pastor Wright's daughter. The boy looks back at the piano and pokes a few more keys. I recognize the melody. It's Mama's favorite hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Leaning against the pulpit, my back to the pews, I begin to hum along. Mm -hmm. The boy stops playing and stares at me. His eyes are such a light blue that the irises almost look transparent. Come here. The boy pats the space beside him. I squeeze myself onto the rickety wooden bench.
10: You sing and I'll play.
3: Be thou my vision He lifts both hands to the keys with a practiced ease. I sing along mostly because I like the song and because he plays so nicely even though the piano is a little out of tune. Somehow the music doesn't break the sanctuary's spell, although my voice echoes off the high ceilings and comes back to me sounding unfamiliar and ethereal. Patience! I scramble down and hurry to get back through the vestry and answer my father's call. I don't say goodbye to the boy. The parsonage smells of mothballs, and the sickly sweetness of poison meant for rats or roaches. It has the same close, stuffy feeling as the rooms of the church. I do have my own room, but the baby crib stands in the corner. Mama's smile is apologetic. It's only for now. Daddy needs the nursery for an office. Daddy has an office in the church. That's what I want to say. But I lie down in my bed and let Mama cover me up and kiss my forehead. The ceiling fan is spinning too fast. So fast it squeaks above Mama's head and shakes a little like it might come loose and fall down on her. But it doesn't. I lie awake listening to it after she leaves. After a few minutes, it mellows into a low, metallic whine. I keep thinking I won't be able to fall asleep because the fan is so noisy. I'm not sure when it was that I began to doze off. Hello? I open my eyes wide. The voice whispers in the quiet darkness of my bedroom, hiding beneath the buzz of the fan blades, sneaking behind the cardboard boxes full of my clothes and toys. I pull the covers over my head, holding tight fistfuls of blanket next to my ears.
10: Hello? Is your name Patience?
3: I want to call for Mama and Daddy. I want to jump out of bed and start running, but I just pull the blanket tighter over me, curling into a ball. The voice is closer now. I can hear it breathing long, deep breaths like it's tasting the air. Then there's warm air just over my forehead.
10: I'll turn the fan off. I didn't like the fan in here either. It's too loud.
3: The warmth goes away. It's quiet. I realize that the fan has stopped. Slowly, I look out from underneath the blankets. From somewhere in the darkness, the voice speaks.
10: Good night, Patience.
3: Patience, you're too big to be having nightmares. Mama scolds me as she stands over the stove. I have dark circles under my eyes from lying awake the past few nights. Too terrified to sleep. Unable to leave the room. Mama has started locking me in at night. Yes, ma'am. I nod obediently, but numbly. I'm barely awake enough to eat the breakfast she puts in front of me. My meek submission does nothing to stop her fussing. I want to go back to sleep, but I can't bear being in that room. If I try lying down on the couch in the living room, I'll be in for another round of scorn. I pick at the biscuits and eggs on my plate until Mama has worn herself out, and she waves me outside. I vaguely wonder, as I meander the church grounds, whether the snakes and poison ivy that I've been warned of would be worth the risk of napping in the woods somewhere. There appears in my mind a picture of soft, mossy ground under a shady tree, completed by a babbling brook and an impossibly cool breeze. I stand at the tree line and stare at the ground, covered in brown pine needles and thorny brush. Reluctantly, I acknowledge to myself that the only hope for a rest is to sneak into the church. I make a wide circle around the parsonage, catching a glimpse of Mama passing the living room window. The window to what was supposed to be the nursery is dark. So much for Daddy's office. The front doors of the church are flung open. I pause, hidden from view by the overgrown shrubbery that lined the shabby building's walls. Maybe there's some sort of meeting scheduled for the morning. A ladies' auxiliary, or an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, or just a bunch of people who want to talk to Daddy for some boring reason. I'll have to be sneakier than I thought to get to a quiet spot unnoticed. I quietly edge along to the back door of the church, the one that leads into the kitchen. With one eye on the windows of the parsonage, I listen hard at the door. No murmurs. No sounds of whirring coffee makers or chattering ladies. Just silence. So, in I go. There doesn't seem to be anyone around. It's more still and quiet than the first day we arrived. Daddy must be near the front, waiting for someone. I slip soundlessly back to the vestry near the sanctuary. There's an empty space behind a rack of choir robes, just big enough for me and a large felt Christmas banner that I wad up and use as a pillow. It's a bit stuffy, but it's cooler than outside and it's dark and quiet. Slowly, I drift off to sleep. I wake to the sound of the piano being played. The door to the sanctuary is cracked just a bit. So I crawl carefully out of my hiding spot to the side of the stairs, peeking out while I crouch in the shadows like a gargoyle. Is it the boy from before? I can only see one of the player's hands. The door and the dark keep me from seeing the rest. The music isn't a hymn that I know. It sounds different, like water and night, like a lullaby sung by the stars. I'm so eager to hear more, I don't realize how far forward I'm leaning until the stairs groan under my weight. I lean a bit farther out, trying to catch a glimpse of the retreating figure, but there's nothing but murky darkness and those muted colored windows, glowing with the noonday sun. A hand clamps down on my shoulder. Ah! Patience. The hand turns me forcefully to face him.
7: What on earth have you been doing? Your mother has been calling you for ages.
3: S- Sorry, Daddy but I don't offer an explanation. Anything I say will be reported directly to my mother, and I'd rather keep my silence than hear another lecture. His heavy hand doesn't leave the back of my neck as he steers me through the church, out the doors, and marches me across the dandelion-speckled lawn back to the kitchen table in the parsonage. Mama is in a huff, but she's decided to give me the silent treatment since I won't explain where I've been. She bustles around, putting grilled cheese sandwiches and apple slices in front of me and Daddy. Daddy sits on the opposite side of the table and glares at me, his bushy eyebrows smushed together on his high forehead. I eat quickly and excuse myself into the living room to read. Mama and Daddy speak softly to each other once I leave, and I hear them laugh and kiss as the empty plates and glasses clink against each other in the sink. After Daddy's first sermon that Sunday, they have another potluck. I'm wearing my most scratchy, uncomfortable dress because it's the one mama likes best on me. For so few people living in the town, the church is suddenly very full. There are people tucked into every room and standing around in the hallway, paper plates loaded with potato salad and brisket, balanced precariously on knees or on top of cans of diet soda. There are even a couple of teenagers lounging around on the stage in the sanctuary flicking watermelon seeds at each other. I'm too hot and too tired for so many people. There's one place that I just know will be empty and quiet, just for a minute. I'm not supposed to know, but there's a key to the pastor's office balanced on the doorframe above the sanctuary. I manage to snatch it without anyone seeing and scurry down the hall to the office before I can be cornered by yet another impossibly old lady who wants to tell me how adorable I look. The pastor's office is at the very back of the building, farthest from the front doors and separated judiciously from the kitchen and the fellowship hall. By a stroke of luck, this seems to be the one place in the whole building that no one wants to crowd into. Checking over my shoulder, I can see that the coast is clear. So I fumblingly jab the key at the lock. I twist the key, but I can't hear any clicks or feel any give to the doorknob. I stand back, confusion clouding my face. I wonder if the lock is broken, and that's why Daddy needed to set up in the nursery. Before I can reach out to try the knob again, it rattles. Hard. Like someone is trying to get out. I look around wildly, sure that someone will have heard will come running to see what has happened. But I'm still alone. And then the rattling and the beating stop. In spite of knowing better, in spite of being a little shaken from the sudden noise, I bend down. These old buildings always have large gaps under the doors for some reason. On my knees, my shiny black shoes scuffing in the red carpet, I lay my head against the floor. Maybe I expected to see shoes, a chair pushed against the knob, or even someone staring back at me. But I can't see anything. It's dark inside the office. It shouldn't be. It's the middle of the day, and I know that room has a window. I can see it from my bedroom. It shouldn't be so dark in there. I inch closer, my eyes straining to make out even the slightest detail. Suddenly, two hands, small like mine, shoot out from under the door, clawing desperately from their cramped position. A handful of my hair is gripped tight by the grasping fingers, but with so little purchase that I easily pull away, scrabbling back like a crab. I don't shriek or call out, but stare, fascinated at those hands, still reaching as far as they could, fingers splayed and knuckles whitening as they strain against the bottom of the door. Patience.
10: Patience, have you come to let
3: me out? Who are you? Let
10: me out, patience. Let me out. 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 Let me out.
3: I get up and run then. And instantly the tiny church hallways seem practically maze-like and forever long. And totally abandoned. My instinct is to head for the kitchen because that's where Mama is. But as I stumble along, I can't help but notice that everyone in the church has simply disappeared. The sanctuary doors are open, but there's no one inside. I can't hear anyone. I can't even smell any of the food. The kitchen is bare, dark and empty. I fling myself against the back door and ricochet off. It's locked tight. Jumping back up, I rattle the doorknob fruitlessly, then look behind me wildly. The only sound is my own ragged, uneven breathing. I run to the front doors. My steps echo strangely, as though the hallways were huge and bare. When my hand touches the door handle, I hear music coming from the sanctuary behind me. The doors are still open. I turn, my whole body cold and covered in goosebumps. The piano is playing. That song of water and darkness. It's so dim in the sanctuary I can hardly make anything out but there's definitely someone sitting at the piano. My feet are carrying me slowly, excruciatingly slowly, down the aisle, toward the altar, toward the pulpit, to the music. I'm like a magnet being pulled through sand, a fish on a line reeled inexorably out of the water. I climb onto the stage, on the far side, away from the piano. I stand with my back against the wall, and fight with every breath to stay there, to stay away. The music stops. The shadowy figure begins to turn, to look at me. I edge along the wall, feeling for something to hold on to, something to help me resist the urge to move forward, to put myself within the reach of those long fingers. I find the doorknob of the little alcove and hold it tight. The figure begins to extend their spindly arms towards me, to rise, to come and fetch me. No! I twist madly, both hands on the knob, and it turns, giving way and sending me flying backwards down the steep steps and into utter blackness.
9: Napping again. (laughs) Will someone run and tell Pastor Wright and the men looking in the woods that we found her?
3: Blinking, I look up to see a crowd of women, silhouetted against the bright sunlight in the doorway of the alcove. My head is pounding, and when one of them shifts and light pours onto my face, it's like a knife through my eyes and into my brain. Mama... I try to shift myself and discover that my limbs are tangled in choir robes and the debris of a few crushed cardboard boxes. My shoulders ache, and one of my ankles feels stiff and immovable. Mama and the ladies move forward as one, making identical clucking, tutting noises as they come. Just look at the state
9: of you. Heavens, what a mess you've made of things. What on earth were you doing? Look what happened to your pretty dress.
3: I crane my neck awkwardly and see streaks of dust on the front of my skirt and a long tear along the hem. I'm sorry. I don't say anything else. I just cry silently as I'm picked up and carried off. The next day, I am confined to my room. Mama insists that I keep the fan on, lest I overheat and faint again, That's the general consensus among the adults, that I was off playing in the sanctuary when I fainted and fell. They wrote off the piano-playing shadows and the fingers reaching from under the door as another nightmare. I begged Mama to let me sleep on the couch in the living room while my ankle got better, but Daddy frowned at me and carried me to my bed.
7: God hath not given us the spirit of fear.
3: At least Mama leaves the door propped open. I hear her in the kitchen tell Daddy that she thinks my nightmares are worse because she's been locking me in at night. At least, I think that's what she tells him. I hear patience and nightmares and all night long and locked, but everything else is just mumbling sounds. But I know she feels bad because she brings me chocolate milk and sits beside me humming and stroking my hair all morning. In the afternoon... She goes to take lunch to Daddy, working in the church, leaving me with a book and a peanut butter sandwich. The fan's blades droning whirr blends with the sound of cicadas in the trees outside. Mama will be back soon, I think, as I methodically bite the crusts off my sandwich. I squint at the church windows visible from my bedroom, trying to catch a glimpse of someone moving around inside. The noonday sun's glare makes the windows golden but opaque my mouth full of peanut butter, I awkwardly shift myself closer to my own window, thinking that if I can just angle myself properly, I'll be able to see past the glow.
10: I'm sorry you got hurt, Patience.
3: The voice is behind me. The hairs on the back of my neck stand on end, and I stop breathing for a moment.
10: I didn't mean to scare you. I just wanted to come out.
3: I try to move myself closer to the window, practically on top of the ledge to move away. But my ankle twinges painfully, and I still...
10: It's okay. It's okay that you didn't know how.
3: Fingertips brush against my shoulder. Tentative in an attempt at comfort. I wince.
10: I could teach you patience. I could teach you how to let me out.
3: I close my eyes. I don't turn. I barely breathe. Tell me how... There are no voices or shadows for a long while. It's as though whatever has been lurking in the church is hiding, holding its breath, waiting for me to make up my mind. My ankle seems determined to stay swollen and useless, and Mama becomes less willing to keep me company as more and more social opportunities begin piling at the doorstep. She pouts and prods until Daddy agrees that she can have a ladies' tea and Bible study on Wednesday afternoon. I am carried to the rocking chair, with my foot propped on a little cushion, and warned to speak only when I'm spoken to, and to smile. I would have preferred to stay in bed. Like most of the social functions Mama hosts, Bibles are present, but not strictly necessary as far as the attendants are concerned. There is a good deal of new baby talk, and who else might be expecting, and who just got married, and following that line who might get divorced, and why, and which one of them got caught doing something they oughtn't. I nibble cookies when they're handed to me, and practically drown myself in iced tea just to have the excuse to escape to the bathroom. I don't count on one of the ladies, Mrs. Cypress, graciously, persistently, unrelentingly offering to help me down the hall. Mama shot me a look as I began to protest, and I knew that there was no fighting it. Mrs. Cypress awkwardly half-dragged me down the hall as I tried to keep my own balance against her pulling, overly tight grasp. She even insisted on coming into the bathroom with me, in case I fell off the toilet, I guess, and stood with her back to me. Don't worry, I won't peek. I thought I'd be able to hold myself together, despite her overbearing air. I thought I'd be able to be good and keep out of trouble. I really thought I'd be okay. And then, as she settled me back in my rocking chair, Mrs. Cypress commented, in a voice that overrode every conversation in progress, that the floral patterned underwear my mother bought me was absolutely precious. And if she'd ever had a little girl, she would have wanted to dress her exactly the same. My face must have shown what I was feeling, and Mama frowned and shook her head at me so hard she looked like a dog trying to shake itself dry after a swim. It was too late. So, Mrs. Cypress, I suppose you only had boys? Isn't your youngest named Ezekiel? I spoke very softly, but everyone in the room seemed to snap to attention at the sound. Mrs. Cypress froze halfway back to her seat on the sofa, almost turning, but not daring to look me in the face. What did you say? Ezekiel Cypress? Who played the piano so well? Who loved to come to the church late at night? Who never...
7: That's enough, Patience.
3: Daddy's voice comes from the front door, just behind me. He scoops me up and carries me off down the hall.
9: Oh, I think that's enough excitement for today. Why don't I go make us some more tea? How did she know? Who would have told her?
3: Mrs. Cypress is still standing in the middle of the living room, muttering to herself, her face flushed.
12: It's true, then, about the girl. She can't don't speak such things in the pastor's house.
3: Daddy sets me down in my bedroom and takes a step back from my bedside, staring down at me, his brow furrowed.
7: I thought we agreed things would be different here, Patience.
3: I stare back at him, defiant. As though it senses my decision, a shadow falls across the sun, darkening my room and sending a chill through the air. People die everywhere, Daddy. That's never different. Late at night, I lift myself out of bed with a soft creak. The house is dark, except for a light in the kitchen. I can hear Mama snoring softly in her bedroom, but Daddy is awake. The sound of rushing water from the tap mingles with his deep, tuneless humming as he cleans the supper dishes and stacks them on the drying rack. I have no choice but to move slowly. My ankle won't hold my weight. But I pad silently down the hall, and to the front door, the kitchen light spilling golden onto the old shag carpet. As slowly as I can manage, I twist the doorknob and push gently against the wood of the door, feeling the warm night air brush against my bare legs and cheeks like the caress of a friendly cat. Then I am outside, bare feet tickled and prickled by overgrown grass and weeds, the sky above glittering with stars. If there was a moon, I would glow like a specter in my white nightgown, set against the blackness of the trees. But there is no moon tonight. I walk gingerly across the lawn to the front doors of the church, afraid of stepping on something sharp or squishy in the darkness. When I reach the doors, they are already cracked open, just barely, and I slip inside. The night sounds of chirping wings and rustling leaves follow me into the church. The sanctuary door stands open, too. There is no music. There are no figures waiting. The windows are dull, with no light to flood their colored coverings. But I move forward with no hesitation. I know where I'm going. I climb to the piano with some difficulty. My ankle is starting to protest, aching and insistent. I ignore it the best I can. When I sit on the bench... My legs dangle awkwardly. It's higher than it looks. I reach out to touch the keys. Patience. My father is close behind me, but keeps his distance. My fingers pause in midair, a hair's breadth away from their intended resting place. I have to let him out, Daddy.
7: No, Patience. You don't have to do anything. It's not your job to...
3: I hear his footsteps, hesitant. Only one or two in my general direction. When I speak, he stops moving. You don't know what it's like, Daddy. You don't know, and you don't want me to tell you. You never want to hear what happens when they get stuck in the middle.
7: Patience, think of our new life here. If you do this- If I
3: don't do this, I'm the only one who hurts. You don't care if I'm the only one who hurts. So, I don't care if this hurts you and I press my fingers to the keys, my hands flowing suddenly into motion, flooding the room with that music of stars and shadows and deep, deep waters that are never still. I hear my father turn and run. I hear a door slam open down the hall and faintly, far across the lawn, daddy shouts my mother's name. Cold, small hands rest on top of mine. Warm breath on my neck becomes a whisper. Thank you, Patience. I am quiet.
10: I have to leave you now, don't I? I'm sorry again about your ankle and all.
3: I don't say anything at all. The cold hands hold on to mine and squeeze tightly. The warm breath feels, for a moment, like a kiss. And then it is gone. In the morning, they find me there, curled up beneath the piano, clutching sheet music with a name scrawled on it in a child's clumsy script. Ezekiel Cypress. The car is already packed. Mama has dark circles under her eyes and doesn't look at me as Daddy puts me in the back seat. In the weak morning light, we drive north through the pine trees, and not one of us looks back at the parsonage. Not. Even. Once.
0: In our fourth tale, we join a young couple just after moving into a house of their own. Suffering from insomnia, the husband surveys the neighborhood from the window at night and begins to notice his new neighbors acting strangely. Written by Mr. Michael Squid and performed by Dan Zapula, Addison Peacock and Aaron Lillis, join us as we attempt to discern why my neighbors practice acting normal at night.
4: My wife and I just moved into a modern home on a quiet cul-de-sac in the suburbs. A few months after, she broke the wonderful news. She was pregnant. We'd done extensive research to find this house. It's only a quarter mile from a school and off of the highway. A safe little haven from busy roads, and it's not too far away from my job. After the movers left, and a few hours spent unpacking and relaxing... Sharon and I finally slept in our new home two nights ago. I'm a bit of an insomniac already, and in a new place, I found myself tossing and turning. I eventually read the 2.30 a.m. on my bright phone screen and sighed. I finally got up, wandered downstairs, and poured a glass of water. Then I walked to the living room and opened the window for some fresh air a habit that I've found myself engaging in ever since quitting smoking. Through the open window, I heard a muffled woman's voice speaking, and realized it was coming from the next-door neighbor's house. I looked over to the neighboring house's side window, and through it saw a woman in her fifties standing profile in her unlit living room, barely visible due to the cold glow of the moon's light. She stood there, extending a hand forward and raising it up and down, as if pantomiming the action of shaking a hand in greeting. I had to strain my ears and focus, but I was able to hear what she was saying as she repeated that action.
9: Ah, you're the new residence. I'm Mrs. Ainsworth.
4: She tilted her head back to look at the ceiling.
9: What a nice day. Funny to think it's nearly October.
4: She twitched into an odd shiver, clearly having trouble at the end before trying again.
9: What a nice day. Funny to think Halloween is nearly here.
4: Then she restarted the sequence with the handshake gesture, over and over. I felt guilty spying and didn't want to speculate about what speech impediment or possible neurosis my neighbor might have. Though creeped out a bit... I headed back to bed to eventually fall asleep. I woke up yesterday morning to the smell of sizzling bacon and the nostalgic sounds of the Pet Shop Boys from downstairs. I coasted through my morning routine with time to spare. The house felt like a home. And when I descended the stairs to see Sharon wiggling her butt to the 80s track West End Girls in her plaid pajamas... It was. I couldn't help but smile as I wiped the sleep from my eyes while Sharon sung into the spatula and performed an impromptu dance routine before wrapping her arms around me.
3: Babe, I swear it's perfect. Do you hear that?
4: She cocked her head towards the Bluetooth speaker. I nodded with a smile.
3: We can play music without the neighbors banging on our wall there are no drunk assholes pissing outside our window? And look at this!
4: Sharon used the spatula to point to the wide granite countertops, then to our plates of eggs and bacon.
3: I have room to cook!
4: I smiled. Her comment about the window reminded me of the night before, and I almost said something about the neighbor. But Sharon was in such a good mood, so I let it go. Well... We need to make sure to unpack all the CDs, not just the 80s jams you stole from your parents. She rolled her eyes dramatically, but she was still smiling. I soon kissed my wife and headed out the front door into the golden sun of our picturesque American suburb. I was unlocking my car when I felt staring eyes. And I turned my head to see a woman, that neighbor from the night before watching me for a second before walking over, wearing the same outfit she had worn last night. She extended a thin hand, which I shook, feeling her cold skin as she said those words.
9: Ah, you're the new residence. I'm Mrs. Ainsworth.
4: She looked up at the sky, then flashed a large, strange smile.
9: What a nice day. Funny to think Halloween is nearly here.
4: I... Um, yes. Yes, it is a nice day. I tried not to trip over my words. I introduced myself and motioned to my wife in the doorway, who waved and smiled. Mrs. Ainsworth kept that broad grin on her face as she walked backwards a few steps, before turning and briskly walking to her house, ducking under her garage door, and then shutting it abruptly. My gaze drifted back to Sharon, who gave me the, what was that, look. I shrugged and shook my head before getting in the car, trying to focus on the day ahead. Yesterday evening, when I arrived home after a tiring day of work, Sharon and I discussed the eccentric neighbor, and I explained what I had seen in the middle of the night, that Mrs. Ainsworth had been practicing all night to introduce herself.
3: She clearly wanted to make a good impression.
4: She gave me a wink and a smile.
3: Wait, should I be jealous, babe?
4: Oh, yes. Yes, you should. She smacked my shoulder before I continued normally. I'm being serious. It was creepy. Sharon didn't seem bothered by it, suggesting maybe the neighbor had suffered from a TBI, a traumatic brain injury. She explained she'd seen a few in her years as a therapist. I shrugged and thought it was possible, but I wasn't content with that answer. As the evening carried on, however, I eventually found myself feeling less on edge as we enjoyed a romantic evening in. We fell asleep in each other's arms, and I almost slept through the night. I tossed and turned again and woke up around 2 a.m. needing to use the bathroom. As I was about to switch off the light and leave, I looked out the upstairs window, and my hair stood on end. From that angle, I could see into multiple rooms of the neighbors' houses in the cul-de-sac. In every home, I could see at least one of the neighbors, fully dressed and standing in the dark. It was impossible to make out what they were saying, but they were all just practicing everyday tasks. Things that were normal during daylight, but unsettling in those dark rooms in the middle of the night, alone. A chubby man in a sweatsuit and headband jogged in place in his living room with the lights out before turning his head in a double take and waving as if spotting someone. In another home's upstairs window, a little girl with blonde hair skipped with a jump rope in her dark bedroom. I then looked two houses over to a man dressed in oil-stained overalls leaning on his kitchen table and using a wrench as if he were fixing something invisible. He paused every so often to wipe his forehead with his hairy wrist. After watching him for a few minutes, His head turned to me and his eyes locked onto mine, causing me to stumble back and duck out of view with a racing heart. When I finally peeked back again, he was gone. I was barely able to sleep after an hour trying to make sense of it in my mind. This morning, I got dressed and shuffled downstairs to meet Sharon. As she poured me a glass of OJ and scrambled some eggs, I explained that something wasn't right with the neighbors, that they were practicing acting normal in their dark homes at night. She said, rather coldly, that I needed sleep, that I was overthinking things. After nearly getting into a fight, she told me she'd look out for anything peculiar as I chugged some coffee before heading out into the crisp air underslept and on edge. When I stepped into the sunlight, I heard a rhythmic tapping and turned around. There, I saw the fair-haired child skipping rope in a driveway across the street. Sweat beaded on my forehead as I turned my head more to see the white truck in the driveway of that other neighbor in the overalls as he leaned under the hood with his wrench to fix his engine. I watched the practiced routine continue as he wiped his brow with his hairy wrist. My eyes then darted over to the chubby man in a sweatsuit and headband, jogging down the sidewalk in my direction. He soon turned his head, pretending to be surprised by seeing me. Then he gave me that friendly wave I'd seen him practice over and over last night. As he jogged past, I watched his face drop slack as he rotated his head out of view, continuing on. I drove out of our cul-de-sac, but soon pulled onto the shoulder of the main road. And I watched. I called Sharon, unable to even drive to work as I sat in my car, until she finally answered. She kept throwing around terms like adjustment disorder and delusional but she hadn't seen them all practicing last night like I did. She didn't pull onto the shoulder of the highway to watch the jogging man continue around his house and stop at the back door, dead in his tracks. She didn't see those thin, spidery legs slowly reach from his parted lips before he entered his home. She also didn't call me Babe this morning, as she always does. She called me Hon.
0: In our fifth tale, a man is asked by his sister to help their mother go through old tapes of their childhood in order to make digital copies. At first, he enjoys the process, the nostalgia of it. But soon, he begins to hear a strange voice on the tapes. A voice his mother can't hear. Written by Heather Deiter and performed by Mike DelGaudio, Nicole Doolin, Erica Sanderson, Ellie Hirschman, Kyle Akers, and Jesse Cornett. This is Mom Needs Help With Her Tapes.
2: I grew
7: up in a very musical family. Every one of my four siblings and I play piano and violin, and we've got pretty decent singing voices as well. My mother single-handedly taught us all and still composes music on her own, even now in her 80s. Now, my father's only musical ability, however, was to (laughs) play the radio, as he often joked. And because of this, he was sort of our designated documentarian. Piano recitals, family concerts, you name it. My father was there with his trusty reel-to-reel tape recorder. We'd play and sing, and he would happily capture every song. Recording his family seemed to be his one true passion in life. After watching some Robert Drew documentaries, he was inspired. So he started to record his children at play. His nod to cinema verite in an audio-only format. He'd come home from work to see us five kids pretending to be cops and robbers or some other nonsense. And he'd set up the reel-to-reel and just let it record for hours and hours. My father was a great man, but organization was not his strong suit. And after he died, he left just dozens of boxes full of unmarked tapes that my mother packed up and just shoved in the closet. She didn't want to throw them away due to their sentimental value, but she didn't have the time or energy to sort through them all. So that's where I came in. Being the family's tech genius must have some perks, but I've yet to find out what they are. Mostly I'm just asked to figure out why someone's phone isn't working or where exactly the cloud is. It can get pretty frustrating, to be honest. So when my sister contacted me to see if I'd help our mom digitize the tapes, I was... I was hesitant.
1: Come on, Mike. You know Mom can barely check her text messages, let alone go through all of those tapes. And she's really been missing Dad lately. It would be really nice if you did this for her. Plus, you're the only one who knows how to do that kind of stuff.
7: Shannon, do you know how long it would take me to go through all of those boxes? I mean, you're talking weeks of works, if not months. Tedious work. Mind-numbing work.
1: Aw, it won't be that bad. You'll get to go through and relive all of our childhood memories. It'll be fun. Besides, I wouldn't expect you to do it for free. I talked to the other three and we're all willing to pay you to do it. It's not like you can really turn down the money.
7: After quitting my job over what HR would call creative differences and what I would call my boss being a total asshole, I was pretty strapped for cash. It's not easy to find a new tech job in your 50s. I was older than everyone in my last office by like 30 years so desperate for money i resigned myself to the tedious task of listening to each tape converting it to an mp3 file and labeling each track i decided to temporarily move in with my mother to save time during the two-hour distance between my current apartment and my childhood home needless to say my mother well she was over the moon having me in her house again
5: Oh, I am just delighted to have my sweet pea back home again.
7: Mother, I am a 54-year-old man.
5: No matter your age, you'll always be my precious baby. And it's just so sweet of you to help me with all these old tapes. I really can't thank you enough. It's almost like having your father back again. <sighs> I just miss him so much, you know.
7: I miss him too, Mom. I tell you what, I'm going to get started right away after breakfast. If I hear Dad on any of the recordings, I'll come get you and we can listen to them together. How's that sound?
5: That would be wonderful, dear. Thank you.
7: After a gigantic meal of pancakes and bacon, I grabbed a box and started my task. I picked up the first tape I could find and threaded it through the machine and onto the empty reel, readying it for playback. After plugging the line out on the tape deck to the audio line in on my computer, I opened up a sound recording software and hit play. The first tape seemed to be from a piano recital my parents held before I was even born. After a few seconds of white noise, I heard the very young voice of my sister announcing the pieces she was about to play. I love my sister, but one can only take so much of a four year old screeching out hot cross buns. Luckily, it was over pretty quickly, and after a polite smattering of applause, I heard the sound of my brother Brian taking her place. Hi, my name is Brian Thompson. I am eight years old, and I will be performing box, minuet, and G. This format continued for the rest of the tapes in that box. My siblings and occasionally a younger version of myself would play various classical music pieces to the delight of my parents and the polite attention of our neighbors. I labeled each tape and made a digital copy of each to keep on my computer. I played the best pieces for mom and she would clap and laugh, reliving her favorite memories. For days, my time spent at home was pretty uniform. I would wake up, Mom would cook me a huge breakfast. I'd retreat back to the old office to record and label the tapes for several hours. Then we'd eat dinner together, accompanied by some lively conversation. After about a week into this routine, I finally discovered a tape that was not a recorded family recital. It started out the same as all the others, introductory white noise and crackling and popping. But this one did not transition into a young voice announcing what violin piece they were about to murder. Instead, I heard some fumbling around and the sound of my father's voice. Okay, yeah, that'll,
2: that'll just about do it. Okay, kids, just don't mind me. Keep on playing. I just want to test something out on the
7: tape recorder. Hands where I can see them, little lady. The sound of us playing continued throughout the entire tape. When I was finished digitizing the tape, I ran to get my mother, certain this was something that she would be interested in hearing. As soon as I got her into the room, I double-clicked the file and watched as her eyes filled with tears upon hearing my father's voice for the first time in months.
5: He really did love you kids so much, you know. Thank you for showing me this. Get it, Ryan. (laughs) Grab your six-shooter, Deputy
7: Mike. Pew, 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 We listened to several minutes of our tiny voices pretending to be cops and robbers. We laughed occasionally at the wacky crimes we invented for our robbers to have committed, but mostly just remained together in comfortable, nostalgic silence. As the clip ended, Mom got up and leaned in to give me a tight bear hug. We did it, we did it.
10: Excellent work, Deputy Mike.
7: Now we can return the gold to the bank. Did you say something?
5: Uh, no, dear, I didn't. I might have groaned a bit trying to get out of my chair, though.
7: <laughs> hey, Mom, wait a minute. Don't go anywhere just yet. I paused the clip right before it ended and scrubbed back a bit. Reaching out an arm to indicate that she should stay and listen to this, I hit play once again.
10: Deputy Mike now we
7: can return the gold to the bank there didn't you hear that
5: hear what honey you kids playing well, of course that's what we've been no
7: obviously not that I, I thought I heard someone whispering my name See, right there. Somebody definitely says my name there.
5: I'm sorry, sweetheart. I, I didn't hear it. But my hearing isn't quite what it used to be. Maybe it was your father asking you to help him with something.
7: It didn't sound like Dad.
10: We did it. Excellent
5: work, Deputy Mike. Now we can return the gold to the bank. Oh, stop doing that. It's probably one of your siblings calling your name and the old tapes have distorted their voice. What does it matter anyway? We were having a nice moment remembering your father. and I've got to be honest, this isn't a good time to try and scare me. Now I'm going to start working on dinner, if you'll
7: excuse me. Oh, Mom, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to scare you. I just, I really thought I heard something. (laughs) I must need to take a break from these tapes. Let me help you with dinner. After dinner, I made it through a few more tapes with no more strange incidents. So I shrugged it off as my mother being right about my sibling's voice being distorted. Around 12.30, I decided to call a night and head to sleep. After a couple hours of dreamless sleep, a faint muffled voice woke me. I groggily checked the clock on my side table 3 AM. Wondering if it was my mother wandering about, I turned the flashlight on on my phone and entered the hallway to investigate. A faint blue glow coming from under the closed door of the computer room pointed me in the direction I should check. I assumed my mother couldn't sleep and decided to listen to my dad's voice again. So I gently pushed open the door. My mother was nowhere to be seen. The computer was on and uh, apparently playing past the initial clip of us playing around. I mean, according to the timestamp, there was no time remaining in the clip, but the icon still indicated that it was on play, and the tiny dot kept creeping along the timeline. I soon recognized the voice as my own around the age of five. I had clearly been sleepwalking and had somehow turned the recorder on in my sleep. My voice was slightly slurred with my semi-awakened state, and I kept pausing after each question or statement to allow an invisible companion to respond to me. The whole effect was just completely unsettling. In my slight panic, I left to check on my mother in the next room. I slowly creaked open her door to find her snoring slightly under her floral-printed comforter. I was glad she was okay, but I was still freaked out so I turned back to the computer room to stop that clip from playing. No way! As soon as I put my hand on the mouse and hovered over the tiny X, the hairs on the back of my neck stood to attention. Wow, that's so cool.
4: Michael.
7: My heart racing, I jumped and turned around only to face the empty space of the room I stood in completely alone. I quickly clicked the X to kill the recording program, turned the computer off, and just ran back to my bedroom where I turned on every light. Now, I may be a grown man, but I still hold firmly to the belief that room lights have an otherworldly power to keep anyone safe at night. I tried to calm myself down and slow my heart rate, rationalizing that I'd just been just freaking myself out and imagined the whole thing. I had just woken up after all. Once I calmed down, I pulled out a book to distract me and ended up reading the rest of the night to avoid going to sleep again. The next morning, I decided to ask my mom about my old sleepwalking habits as a child.
5: Yeah, you had a really bad sleepwalking habit as a kid. Almost every night, I would hear you wandering the house, muttering to yourself. One time... I found you with your little underwear pulled down to your ankles about to pee in your sister's t-shirt drawer. <laughs> oh, luckily, I grabbed you quickly and got you to the toilet first. Actually, that would usually be what would put you back to sleep. I would come find you wherever you had wandered, take you back to the bathroom, you'd go, and then you'd be out like a light for the rest of the night. It's perfectly normal. Lots of kids do it. Your uncle was really bad about it for a while when we were kids growing up. But he had night terrors, too, and would scream and cry for what felt like hours at a time. Why do you ask?
7: So I I heard a tape of myself sleepwalking last night. Really creeped me out. I guess I must have somehow turned on the recorder in my sleep, and it recorded me having a conversation with someone who wasn't there.
5: Okay, Sleepwalking kid is a little creepy on the first encounter, but it's really no big deal. You just have to get used to it. Seriously, it's nothing to worry about. You were a perfectly normal little kid. You just wandered around a bit in the
10: night.
7: I took her word for this and attempted to shake off the foreboding feeling I had since last night. I shrugged and chalked it up to not having any sleep the night previous. Reluctantly going back to the computer room after breakfast, I started working on just a a completely different box of tapes, figuring the quicker I got this task done, the quicker I could be paid and be done with this obviously mind-distorting project. I worked diligently and got through a full box without any unusual incidents. So I moved on to the second box, still nothing. The rest of the evening proceeded without incident. And finally, I calmed down enough to rationalize that I had likely just made the whole thing up, or at least made something out of nothing. I packed up the last tape, glad to see that I only had five boxes left to go until I was finally finished. With a sense of accomplishment I hadn't experienced since before I lost my job, I climbed into bed to enjoy some much-deserved sleep. With a jolt, I lurched forward, only to find myself hurtling head over feet down a deep tunnel. Time seemed to creep forward at an agonizing crawl as I saw the ground slowly moving towards my face. After what seemed like hours, I felt the reassuring weight of the ground hit under my feet. Training my eyes in the pitch darkness, I struggled to identify anything around me other than the faint green light off in the distance. I felt a hook-like pull gripping my spine, and as if possessed, my body involuntarily ambled off towards the lightly glowing orb. As I got closer, I saw that it wasn't one tiny orb, but two, and they both peered out from under a dark shroud, as if they were the piercing green eyes of death incarnate. A shock washed over me, like I had just been drenched with a bucket of ice water. This was familiar. I had been here before. the start, adrenaline coursing through my body, pricking me all over like so many tiny needles. Heart racing, I frantically rubbed away the dryness of my tired eyes to ground myself in the reality of my surroundings. I was standing in the living room, the same room my dad had recorded us playing in so many years ago. The same room I had recorded myself sleepwalking as a child. I ran back to the computer room and pulled up that same clip. I needed to know if I was making myself crazy or if this was real. I skipped through the majority of the clip and again heard five-year-old me mumbling in my sleep after the clip's timeline was supposedly over. I turned the volume all the way up something had been following me. to burst out of my ribcage. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw two glowing green orbs above a ravenous grin before slowly fading out of view. Adrenaline coursing through my body. I did the only thing my body would let me. Go run crying to my mommy.
5: What, what is it? Is there fire? What's wrong?
7: I told her what had happened, and she stroked my hair as I sobbed in her lap, unable to catch my breath.
5: Oh, honey, honey, it's okay. You must have been sleepwalking again. (laughs) No,
7: damn it, I was awake! I saw this... this... this thing, this creature. Mom, we have to get out of here. Something is seriously wrong. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh,
5: sweetheart, I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but you sound absolutely crazy right now. We've been through this before. You just had a bad dream. And those can feel very realistic sometimes. Though I can't tell you the amount of times I woke up angry at your father for something he did to me in a dream. Now, just take a deep breath. Yes, that's it. Good. And another. Okay. Don't you feel better now?
7: I had to admit it. I did. And she made sense. (laughs) I mean, what was more logical? That I was being followed by some malevolent demon intent on devouring my soul? or that I had succumbed to another bout of sleepwalking disorder that had plagued my childhood. I thanked her and decided to go back to my room and try to get a couple hours of sleep. The rest of the night was uneventful, as was the next day. I worked tirelessly until I found myself with only two boxes left to go. I walked over to my mom to tell her the good news. Hey, Mom, I'm almost done with all your reels. I should be done sometime late tomorrow afternoon. You'll finally get some closet space back.
5: Oh, great job, sweetheart. Does this mean you'll be leaving me again? It's been so nice having you around. (laughs) Having anybody around.
7: (gasps) I put my arms around her in a great big bear hug. (sighs) I'm sorry, Mom, but... We both knew i couldn't stay here forever i gotta get back to my life try and find another job maybe even go on some dates i can't really bring anyone around to my mother's house now can i
5: (laughs) (laughs) no i suppose not but can't you just stay for a little while longer it's so nice to be able to take care of someone again
7: As much as I loved my mother, there was no way in hell I could stay in her house any longer. Living in my childhood home was obviously beginning to regress me into that state and damage my psyche. I'm sorry, Mom. I really can't stay. I gotta get back on the horse, you know?
5: I understand.
7: After dinner, I cleared the dishes and decided to play a piece on the piano as kind of a thank you to my mother for all she had done for me. I selected Moonlight Sonata, a classic and one of her favorite pieces, and I just let the music flow through my fingers, soothing and relaxing the both of us. I finished playing and turned to see tears streaming down my mother's face.
5: That was absolutely beautiful, Michael. Thank you so much for that.
7: <laughs> now I know you're getting nostalgic. You haven't called me by my full name since since I was a boy. I'm glad you liked it, Mom. And don't worry, I'll be coming around to play for you a lot more often. Now, let's get to bed. It's past your bedtime, young lady.
11: Oh, <laughs> you.
7: <laughs> I got to my room and was overwhelmed by a sense of calm, the likes of which I hadn't felt since before my divorce. I finally felt like, like life was going to be okay again. With a huge grin plastered on my face, I climbed into bed. To my surprise and relief, I fell to sleep almost instantly. incredibly groggy, I struggled to open my eyes to see what was going on. They felt glued shut, almost as if I had been drugged. The more I struggled to open my eyes, the louder the buzzing and whispering became. I felt my chest tighten and my heart race as an enormous pressure dropped on my torso. I was completely trapped beneath the weight, and the strong sense of calm I had before going to sleep immediately disappeared, and panic clambered into its place as I struggled to mind... eyes finally snapped open, and I found myself face to face with two glowing green orbs. As they slowly came into focus, the orbs were revealed to be eyes, buried in the most hideous face I'd ever seen, Michael. They appeared in the back of two sunken eye sockets, in a face covered in mottled black flesh. The creature slowly smiled at me, cracking its chapped lips as they parted to reveal a mix of rotting brown and yellow teeth, all crudely sharpened into points. It sat there on my chest, panting a nauseating stench of rotting meat into my face and grinning so wildly at me that a glob of mucousy brown saliva threatened to slip out of the corner of its mouth and onto my lips. I strained to move, to talk, to do anything but lie there, but I was was totally immobile. The creature leaned in and put its face inches in front of mine. You're not going anywhere, Michael. Michael. I started to thrash. I attempted to break free of my invisible bonds and run. The creature grabbed my arms, its long claw-like yellow nails biting into my flesh. It laughed and started shaking me, repeating my name over and over again. Michael. I fought as hard as I could, my struggles not affecting the still-grinning creature in the least. Then, abruptly out of nowhere, I woke up. I screamed as I saw my mother's face, inches from Mom.
5: Michael, are you okay, sweetie? What the hell, Mom? What are you doing? You were flailing around and screaming, and then you just stopped. I I was checking to see if you were still breathing. With your face?
10: Mom,
7: seriously, there is something in this house. We have to get out of here, now. We've got to get to a hotel, go to Shannon's, something. No. You're
5: being ridiculous. We don't need to leave. This is our home. We can't leave. We have to stay here. You have to stay here with me. I need you here with me. Your mother who loves you. It's for the best. Trust me on this, Michael. There's nothing left for you out there anyway.
7: Her sudden change in demeanor shocked me. Where was my sweet and supportive mother? Where was the woman who did her best to make sure her children were successful? Why on earth would she be so adamant that we stay in the house? Then it dawned on me. You you knew about this? You knew about all of this, didn't you? That thing is what killed Dad, isn't it? And and you just let it. Why? So it would leave you alone? How could you?
5: It wasn't my decision. As soon as I brought you home from the hospital, it attached itself to you. I'd come into your nursery to catch it hovering over your cradle as you slept. As soon as you could walk, I would find you sleepwalking and babbling to that thing, and I was powerless to stop it. It wouldn't listen to me. Your father and I tried everything, priests, Sage, nothing worked. But one night, your father loved you so much, he would have done anything for you kids. He offered himself up as a trade. He sacrificed himself so that you could be free. He suffered for years, fending it off of you. It would feed on him keeping him alive just barely until he was nothing but a shell of a man at the end. He didn't have Alzheimer's like we told you kids. There was just nothing of him left. When he finally died, I thought our family would be free. I thought it would be satiated that his ultimate sacrifice had saved us. But then... Shannon's kid stayed with us. And little Forrest started sleepwalking to the living room just like you did. He's just a kid, Michael. He has his entire life left to live. You don't have a family of your own. You don't have a job. You don't even have a wife anymore. This is what your dad would have wanted. Think of little Forrest.
7: I stared at her, unable to process what she had just said. Sacrifice myself? Just give in to it? Be another victim in what was sure to be a long line of selfless do-gooders simply bandaging over the problem instead of actually solving it? That was her only solution? Not me. Nah, I'm more of a hands-on kind of guy myself. Mom, I need you to get out of the house. I'm not letting this thing win without a fight.
5: Michael, what are you doing? This is our home. Michael, stop.
7: I ran to the computer room and started pulling the tapes out of the boxes and into a pile. Little known fact, reel-to-reel tapes are highly flammable. And on the off chance I was right, and this thing was also highly flammable, I wanted it to burn. I needed it to suffer for what it did to my dad. My mother grabbed at my arm, trying to get me to stop.
5: Michael, stop it! Stop it! You can't! You're not thinking rationally! This is our home, Michael, our home! You can't burn it down! Think of all our memories!
7: I ignored her and flicked the lighter on as my pile was completed. I looked into her eyes and went to drop the lighter on the tapes. In that moment, she snarled and dove at me, and I noticed a familiar green glow around her pupils. This wasn't my mother. My mother had probably been gone for years, doubtless the first victim to sacrifice for this family. This creature had used her form to prey on my emotions, on my dad's emotions for years, trying to garner enough sympathy to get us to willingly give ourselves up to it.
2: He gave
7: in. I would not. I shoved the creature, posing as my mother, onto the growing fire. As the flames enveloped her, she twisted and melted into an amalgamation of the hideous creature and my mother's face that I had loved for years. I ran out of the house and locked the front door behind me. Hey, Shannon. Yeah, I'm gonna need to crash at your place for a bit. I'll explain when I get there. (laughs) Yeah, Mom's been a real bitch lately.
0: In our sixth tale, a woman is handing out candy to trick-or-treaters on Halloween night. However, one boy keeps reappearing in different costumes and asking the same question each time, which begins to awaken a painful memory from her past. Written by Blair Daniels and performed by Sarah Ruth Thomas and Erica Sanderson, join us as we ponder the question, Can I have more?
12: I sat down in the chair by the window. Outside, hordes of children in bright costumes ran down the sidewalks. Tired mothers shepherded them, holding bags of candy. Their excited, chittering and squealing laughter came through the window, clear as day. I sighed as I saw a group of children cross the street and start towards my house. I hate Halloween for many reasons. I have to get up every 10 minutes to hand out candy, I have to pretend like I'm excited about it. A few days from now, I'll probably get the flu from all their grimy little hands. And it's such a driving hazard. Whoever thought little kids running around the street at dusk was a good idea? I heaved myself up, grabbed the bag of Milky Ways, and walked towards the door. Five kids stood on the doorstep, A few princesses, a batman, and a devil. I unceremoniously grabbed handfuls of candy and plopped them in each kid's bag. A few murmured thank yous. Can I have more? I looked up. The kid dressed as a devil stared at me, a small smile on his face. His blonde hair shone in the porch light. His eyes were a piercing ice blue. There was something oddly familiar about him but I couldn't place it. Uh, sure. I dropped a few more Milky Ways in the bag. He didn't thank me. He just silently turned around and walked off my porch, following the other children. I shut the door and sat back down in my chair by the window. Outside, the four children walked off my lawn. They showed the mother at the end of the driveway how much candy they'd gotten, and then the group disappeared into the shadows of dusk. Scarcely two minutes had gone by when the doorbell rang again. I grabbed the bag of candy and tromped to the door. I straightened my blouse, plastered a smile on my face, and swung the door open. A similar mix of kids. Two Elsa's, Marshall from Paw Patrol, and a ninja. How scary you all look! They giggled and swarmed around for the candy. All except for the ninja... He stood back from the rest, silently watching me hand out candy to the other kids. When the other kids stepped off the porch, he came forward. He was dressed in black, and most of his face was covered by a black cloth. Just his chilling, ice blue eyes peered out. Can I have more? My blood ran cold. The eyes, the voice. Was he the same kid who had just come by in a devil costume? No. There was no way he could have changed that fast. Probably just a similar-looking kid, right? Can I have more? Sure. Of course. I placed a large handful of Milky Ways in his plastic jack-o'-lantern candy bowl. That's when I noticed it was empty. If he'd been trick-or-treating all evening, why was his candy bowl empty? Hey, are you okay? He didn't reply. As soon as the Milky Ways dropped into the bowl, he was running across my lawn. In seconds, he was gone, camouflaged in the dusky shadows among his fellow trick-or-treaters. I sat back down on the chair. This time, I pulled the curtain shut. I didn't want to look out at the swarm of kids anymore. I just wanted to be alone. I didn't move. I didn't want to answer the door. I finally walked over and swung the door open. Trick-or-treat! My eyes glanced over the trick-or-treaters nervously. A fairy with curly brown hair, an Incredibles boy with brown eyes, a little girl in a tutu. None of them were the blue-eyed little boy I'd seen the past two times. I breathed a sigh of relief. Here you go! I was so relieved, I gave each of them about ten Milky Ways— they squealed in delight and scampered down the path to their parents. I slowly pushed the door shut. It squeaked against the hinges and then slammed shut. I walked back over to the chair and sat down. I looked at my phone. 8:19 p.m. The din of children laughing outside was finally fading. When I peeled back the curtain, the flow of little costumed figures was heading towards the main road. They were leaving. Bedtime was approaching. Soon, the trick-or-treaters would be mostly gone, and I'd be in peace again. Several minutes elapsed in silence. I flipped through a book, checked my texts, and got comfortable. I picked up the candy bag, which was now nearly empty. Only four fun-size bars floated on the bottom. I hoped there wouldn't be a huge crowd of kids when I opened the door. There wasn't. There was just one child. Hello. He didn't say trick-or-treat. He didn't say hi. He remained absolutely silent, standing stiffly on my porch. That's a scary costume. He was wearing some sort of werewolf costume. The outfit was black, tufts of black fur haphazardly taped to his body. On his head was a hideous mask. The snout was contorted into a snarl, revealing yellow teeth. Fake blood dripped from its mouth, caking the fur on his shoulders. Do you want some candy? No reply. A terrible dread sunk in my heart. My hand quivered on the doorknob, wondering if I should just shut it and forget all about him. He finally spoke. Can I have more? Even though I couldn't see his face, I knew who it was. I slammed the door shut in his face. I clicked the locks. I ran to the back door and locked it. I closed the windows. Then I threw myself into the chair and sobbed. The costume was familiar. Horribly familiar. It filled me with a terrible, biting dread. The yellow, sightless eyes. The pointed plastic teeth. Familiar and alien, all at once. I wrapped my arms around my knees and sat there, motionless on the couch, as the laughs of the trick-or-treaters outside faded into silence. I jolted up. My heart throbbed in my chest. I whipped around, looking for the source of the noise. Hello? It was coming from the basement. I walked towards the door. My legs were shaking. My hands were sweaty. My heartbeat pulsed in my ears. I yanked the door open. The basement stairs descended into the shadows. The basement was pitch black. I couldn't see a thing. Hello? I slammed the door shut. I locked it and dragged a chair over it. Then I collapsed against the door, panting, my head in my hands. For several minutes, all was silent. My heart began to slow, and I slowly stood up, taking a step back towards my chair. I whipped around. It wasn't coming from the basement. It was coming from the living room. I squinted in the shadows, trying to make sense of the shapes. I could see the silhouettes of the floor lamp, near the window. The bulky outline of the couch. Something stood between them. Something short, with a horrible, contorted face. Can I have more? How? How did you get there? I scrambled back into the family room. The golden light enveloped me, and I felt slightly better. He's probably just some lost kid. I'll call the police. They'll find his parents. We'll get this sorted out. I straightened myself and put on a confident expression. We'll find your parents, okay? Let me just make a call. We'll get you home safely. Okay, buddy? He didn't reply. Instead, he took a slow step forward. As he came towards the light, I could see there was something terribly off about him. His head tilted strangely to one side. His left arm was twisted and mangled. With each step, his body lurched forward unnaturally. Are you okay? Silence. The fake blood that dripped from the werewolf's snout soaked him. His pale little hands were covered in dark red, shiny blood. The black outfit was stained through and through, glistening in the light. The fur was caked and matted. Can I have more? He was just several feet away now, staring at me with those fake yellow wolf eyes. I backed into the family room. I fumbled for my phone. It was gone. I grabbed at anything I could find and my hands latched onto the nearly empty candy bag. This! Is this what you want? The child didn't reply. He took a step forward. Here! You can have it! In my terrified state, I threw it at him. The bag bounced off his chest and landed at his feet. He didn't pick it up. Can I have more? I gave you more! He looked at me with those horribly familiar yellow eyes. He stopped. He stood just a few feet from me, bloody hands hanging stiffly at his sides. I took a step back and hit the wall. I was cornered. Who are
10: you? (laughs)
12: Why won't you leave me alone? Don't you
5: remember me? What are you talking about? Don't you remember what you did to me?
12: Don't you remember what you did five years ago? Five years ago? Five years ago, on Halloween night. How could I forget? The memory seared through my mind, as painful as the first time. The car door sharply slammed in the night. The engine revved underneath me. The headlights blinked on in the darkness. That night, I wasn't paying attention. i just had a fight with my boyfriend. I was hurrying to leave his house as fast as I could, so I could be the one to get the last word. I barely glanced behind me before I backed out of the driveway. I never even saw him. The black werewolf costume against the shadows of night rendered him nearly invisible. It was over before I knew what was happening. That night, When I ran out of the car and saw the broken, mangled body of a little boy wearing a werewolf costume, I didn't call the police. I didn't call for help. I panicked. I got back into the car, drove over the grass, and peeled out of the neighborhood before anyone could see what I'd done. Do you remember, Eliza? The child cocked his head at an even greater angle as he stared at me through the mask. Do you remember now? "'I do. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I was upset. I wasn't paying attention. "'Can I have more?' "'I looked up. He'd taken off his mask. The left side of his head was crushed. "'Blood dripped down his face, staining his pale skin, caking his blonde hair. "'One ice-blue eye was squashed deep into its socket.' The other was perfectly intact. His neck was bent at a horribly unnatural angle. His lips parted to reveal shattered teeth, a scarred tongue. Can I have more? Can you have more what? Can I have more time? More time? More time alive? I wish... I wish I could give that to you. I wish I could give you life. You can. Just give me yours. I stared at him. I felt numb, weak. My heart ached for the poor, pathetic, mangled child in front of me. It was all my fault. I ran him over. I did this to him. But I also don't want to die. I can't give you mine. I backed away, further into the room. He advanced quickly, walking towards me in swift, lithe strides. You don't have a choice. What are you talking about? His mouth widened into a crooked grin. Trick or treat!
0: In our seventh and final tale, we witness a Halloween rite of passage as the local 13-year-old boys, armed with pumpkins and firecrackers, travel to a lake to pledge their loyalty. What could possibly go wrong? Written by L.R. Cole and performed by Atticus Jackson, find out what it takes to join the Order of Lake Swain.
2: I used to love Halloween. It was my absolute favorite holiday as a kid. The crisp October air, the darkness, the candy, and of course the pranks. Christmas? You can keep it. Give me ghosts and goblins and monsters any day. My name's Reggie Downs. When I was a kid growing up in a little northern town, there was one particular Halloween tradition that always served as a boy's rite of passage. It involved carved pumpkins, usually stolen from neighbors' porch steps, nearby Lake Swain, and some illicit high-powered fireworks. The tradition was simply this. On the first Halloween following a boy's 13th birthday, you were expected to steal a jack-o'-lantern from one of the rich people's houses on Euclid Avenue. The term rich people merely meant that they lived in a two-story house, usually white in color and could afford two cars. I know. I know, we were kids. Just dumb kids. You then were charged with the task of hauling the enormous orange gourds down to the hill and into Euclid Park that sat four blocks south. From there, you took the dirt-walking path that led down to Swain Lake. Arriving at the eastern bank of the lake, you would be met there by a motley group of older kids known to all of us youngsters as the Dirty Dozen. Now, before I go any further with my tale... You may ask why exactly they chose to call themselves the Dirty Dozen. I would have to answer your question as follows. I don't have the slightest idea. They seem no dirtier than any other teenage kids running around the town, and the fact that there were only five of them only served to deepen the mystery that seemed to surround them. Just be aware that the amount of grime that clung to their bodies and their apparent lack of physical numbers are in no way relevant to my story. But I digress. Now, where was I? Oh yeah, the Dirty Dozen. In black t-shirts and jeans, the Dozen would beckon you to the edge of the lake and ask you to swear allegiance to the Order of Link Swain. You in turn would answer, I do, to a few questions from the group, and then were given a couple of M-80s that Tommy Rafter, the Dozen's designated leader, had procured from his dad's illegal fireworks stash. Rumor was that Tommy's dad knew a guy who in turn knew another guy who sold the good stuff out of the back of an old Ford pickup truck that he parked off of County Road 13 just west of town. The guy supposedly offered a 100% guarantee that his particular grade of explosives would, and I quote, blow the living shit out of just about anything. Speaking for myself, I always doubted that guarantee offered a money back clause if you happened to blow the living shit out of your hand or arm. I'm just saying. Once you pledged your loyalty to the Order of Lake Swain, the ceremony concluded with the tossing of the head. The tossing of the head ceremony was supposed to go something like this. 1. Put firework into pumpkin. 2. Light fuse of firework. 3. Put lid back on pumpkin. 4. Lift pumpkin off the ground. 5. Girl pumpkin as high in the air as possible. Six, watch pumpkin explode. Seven, observe the orange slimy mess fall into lake. Eight, cheer wildly. Nine, end of ceremony. So, on that fateful Halloween night when it came my turn to toss the head, I made sure that I repeatedly chanted a silent mantra in my brain. Don't blow your hand off. Don't blow your hand off. Don't blow your hand off." I set my jack-o'-lantern down on the muddy lake bank, removed the lid, and placed the M80, fuse up, inside the orange hollowed-out shell. Using a wood kitchen match, I lit the fuse. As sparks began to dance from the burning wick, I quickly replaced the pumpkin's lid, lifted the now glowing globe off the ground, and heaved it into the dark Halloween sky. It was, in a word, breathtaking. As the orange head arched toward the lake, it rotated in mid-air, its carved features facing back toward us kids standing on the water's edge. The jack-o'-lantern's eyes glowed bright as it grinned at us, views hissing. Then just before it hit the water, it exploded with a deafening thud that you could feel in your chest. Orange glop rained down into the dark lake as wisps of smoke hovered over the surface. After a moment of awed silence, everyone began to cheer. It had been a perfect throw. A thing of beauty, indeed. The dozen gathered around me and patted me on the back, congratulating me on a momentous achievement. You know, I don't think I ever felt that kind of unmitigated pride again in my life. To this day, just thinking about it gives me goosebumps. I shit you not. Post-explosion, as was always the case, The small fish that populated the lake schooled in frenzy around the sinking pumpkin remains and ate their fill. For a full five minutes after the explosion, the surface rippled violently with literally hundreds of hungry bluegill and crappie dining on the fragments of jack-o'-lantern. But as glorious as that moment of Halloween triumph was, my story doesn't end there. You see, I was only one of the two kids who were to be inducted into the Order of Lake Swain that evening. Looking back, I suppose it was rather naive of us to think that moments of perfection would be fated to travel in pairs. Billy Bannock was up next. Billy was an odd kind of kid. He was biggish in bone structure and sported an almost perfectly rounded head. And to this day, I swear to God that he always had what looked like a five o'clock shadow on his cheeks and chin. Just think about it. Thirteen years old... And the kid was already shaving? What the hell? Some kids said that his mom Mildred had once been billed as the bearded lady in one of the many traveling carnivals popular years ago. I for one didn't buy the story because I'd seen Mrs. Bannock on numerous occasions and I didn't think she was hairier than any other kid's mom in town. But who knows, when you're a kid, the world is made up of a multitude of mysteries. Billy, in a fit of unbound enthusiasm, had chosen to steal an exceedingly large pumpkin. It was at least twice the size as his own prodigious noggin. But he was a big boy and twice as strong as I was. If anyone had any doubts about Billy's ability to toss the head on that night, they kept it to themselves. At first, things went as planned. Billy laid the large gourd onto the wet lake edge and placed the M-80 inside. It took him three tries and three stick matches to get the fused lid on the small silver cylinder but it finally sparked to life billy quickly put the lid back on the jack and then went to pick it up as he hoisted the orange glowing ball into the air he put his right hand on the bottom of it to get maximum throwing leverage that's when it happened you see we had experienced an unusually warm week just before halloween In fact, temperatures had reached into the upper seventies for five days straight leading up to the holiday. In that time, as the jack sat baking on a Euclid Avenue front stoop, it had started to rot and soften on the bottom. This proved to be the first in a series of unfortunate events that led to Billy's downfall. We heard a squish, then Billy's hand disappeared into the jack through the punky bottom. It took him a moment to realize the seriousness of the situation he now found himself in. He waved his hand into the dark night as he danced up and down, trying to dislodge the grinning Jack. It was like we'd all been sucked into Irving's sleepy hollow, with the horseman's head taking up residence on the end of Billy's right arm. Then, there was a bright flash, a loud bang, and the pumpkin disintegrated, along with Billy's right hand. Now, what happened next wasn't exactly clear. Everybody that was present that night and bore witness to Billy's pumpkin dance tells a slightly different story. Shock will do that to you, I guess. But here's how I remember the preceding events. After the pumpkin, and Billy's hand, exploded, there was a moment of stunned silence as the whole mess plopped into the lake. Then Billy began to scream. My hand... My hand! Don't let the fish eat my hand!" As he hopped up and down on the shoreline, waving his now-digitless limb around in the darkness, his feet slipped on the slimy mud bank that was the lake's edge. He went down hard on his back, which must have momentarily knocked the wind from his lungs. In any case, the screaming stopped, albeit temporarily. Billy laid there in the muck, his blue-jean-clad legs trailing into the lake. A few of us started inching toward Billy, being careful not to slip into the lake ourselves. I was within two feet of Billy when he started to scream again. At first, I thought his wailing was a direct result of his hand injury, but I soon realized Billy was staring past the shallows where his legs were partially submerged. His eyes, wide and wild, were locked onto something rolling out of the dark water. As I turned my head trying to track what Billy was staring at, a strange rushing noise filled the air. I looked up just in time to see what I perceived to be a wave rising out of the Dark Lake's surface, arching toward the shoreline. The crest of water seemed to grow in size as it closed in on where Billy lay in full scream mode. As I reached down in an attempt to grab hold of Billy's good left hand, The dark form rose out of the water and collapsed upon him. His shrieks grew louder as the black wave started dragging him back into the lake. I quickly realized that I, in turn, was being dragged along with Billy toward the dark water, my feet skating on the surface of wet muck that was the water's edge. An animalistic sound seemed to emanate from deep within the dark wave thing, and I took it as a warning to back off. I let go of Billy. My last glimpse of Billy Bannock lasted only a second or two. His face was visible just below the surface one last time, his eyes wide and wild. Then he was gone for good, pulled deep into the deceptively calm lake by one lone, violent, dark wave. Years later, I'm still no closer to understanding exactly what it was that rose out of Lake Swain to drag Mildred Bannock's son to his death. When I told the authorities exactly what I witnessed, they looked at me like I was crazy. Understandable. For their part, the Dirty Dozen denied seeing anything resembling a dark wave. In fact, they told the cops they didn't see nothing. No one questioned exactly why we were hanging around the lake in the first place that night. They didn't even think to ask about the remaining orange mess of pumpkin on the shoreline or the lingering smell of gunpowder in the air i can only tell you that it was the last halloween for the dirty dozen and the tossing of the head there's a chain link fence that runs around the perimeter of the lake these days there's also a sign that indicates no swimming allowed that hangs from the same fence Billy Bannock's name is etched onto a small brass plate that is attached to a wooden bench his family donated to the park a year after his death. But don't expect to hear his name spoken by anyone who still lives in the town. Billy, it seems, is one piece of history the city fathers would just as soon forget. Me? I don't go near lake shores and I don't carve pumpkins. When I go to sleep at night, more times than not, I still see Billy slowly being dragged into the darkness. Eyes open, mouth agape, in a silent scream. I used to love Halloween. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit the Podcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc.,